Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest is Sharon McCrum, who is an award-winning author, and she's written a new book, a novella, called Nora Bonesteel's Christmas Past. Sharon, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about you. Our listeners always like to know something about, about our guests. So, Okay. Uh, my grandparents were from, my father's parents were from East Tennessee. That side of the family settled the mountains back when it was North Carolina in the 1700s. The setting of Nora Bonesteel's Christmas past. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I live in southwest Virginia. So you live in the Blue Ridge? Yes. Uh, if you took the Appalachian Trail from South Carolina, you'd probably be at my house in about two weeks. I have a very good young friend who has hiked the entire length from Georgia to New England. Yeah, it gets harder once you get up into Pennsylvania. It's still a gentle trail up all the way up here through Virginia. Sharon, where'd you go to school? I went to school at UNC Chapel Hill Mm -hmm. and knew then that I was going to be a writer. In fact, in the third grade, when my class was evenly divided between cowboys and stewardesses. I was the one that said I was going to be a writer someday. And nobody believed me, but I kept at it. Well, good, because this this is not your first book. You've got, what, six or eight already out? I think more like 24. Not in the ballad series, though. There are eight ballad novels. They deal with the history and folklore of the Southern Mountains. I like to talk about the things that nobody knows about the mountains, what the Civil War was like in the mountains, the fact that a group of citizen soldiers in the American Revolution fought a battle in South Carolina that Thomas Jefferson called the turning point of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book about that, and when I was in school in North Carolina, they never even mentioned that battle. Guess what? In history books today, they still don't talk about King's Mountain. That's but, right. But obviously, you talked about your ancestors settling East East Tennessee, the over the mountain folks, which as was part of North Carolina originally. Right. Uh, I had an ancestor at the Battle of Kings Mountain. Okay, these folks were today they call them Ulster Scots, but they were Scots Irish. Yes, they tended to be in the 18th century. All those who did not work and play well with others in the United Kingdom. <laughs> so the mountains were settled by the Scots, the Irish, the Welsh, and the Cornishmen. So if you want to understand the difference between the mountain south and the flatland south, the movie to rent would be Braveheart (laughs) because it was the Scots and the Irish that settled the mountains and they had that same cultural dissonance with the flatland English over in Britain that that still persists in some ways to this day. Well, of course, we could take a riff all under the revolution and the the English found out when they got into the backcountry of South Carolina, they'd start up the wrong folks. But yes, yes. the folklore of, of Scotland plays a big role in Nora Bonesteel's Christmas past. Why don't you kind of set the background, because you've written other ballad novellas, as you say, uh, dealing with the, some of these same characters. So let's kind of set the background for your latest book. The background was that having written a lot of long, serious books about the history and folklore, Abingdon Press, which is not my usual publisher, most of my books come out of New York, Abingdon Press is the fiction arm of the United Methodist Publishing Company. So my fellow authors there are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anyhow, Abingdon asked me if I would do a shorter book for them, and I said, let's do a Christmas book, because Nora Bonesteel appears in most of the ballad novels And she's everybody's favorite character. She's a sweet old lady who has the sight. She knows when things are going to happen. But she never interferes. She will never come up and tell you what's going to happen. She tries to to stay out of it because she says knowing is one thing and changing is another. What's the point of telling someone what's going to happen if you can't prevent it? So anyway, I thought it would be nice to have a Christmas story in which Nora gets more attention than she usually does in the longer novel. She's a minor character. In this one, she has to deal with the new people who live down the road who think their house is haunted. And the thing about Nora being an old lady is that she remembers 70 years ago when that house was occupied by friends of hers. And so if there's a ghost in that house, she will have known the person. You mentioned something that I think 
would be of interest when you talk about the site. Let's talk about that for a little bit. When somebody has the site, and this yes. is this is not talking about the evil eye, but oh no, not at all. The site is well. I'll tell you how I, I got the idea to put Nora Bone Steel in the book, and that will kind of explain it. In the first novel that I wrote, set in the mountains, she wasn't there. The first novel was a very pragmatic, straightforward uh, book told by a male character, and. When that book came out, Scribner's, the publisher, had a party for me at the Appalachian Studies Conference. And so my editor flew down from New York, and we had a reception. And that night at Unicoi State Park, which is where the conference was, we had a party. And most of the people in the party were women professors who taught at universities somewhere between North Georgia and Pennsylvania, all along that Appalachian Trail, the ridge. And after we finished talking about conference business, we started telling the family ghost story. And every woman in that room who had any connection with the mountains, born there, had kinfolk there, they all had a family ghost story. Three people in the room did not have a family ghost story. One was the engineer from Edinburgh, who was a guest. One was a male poet from Cleveland, Tennessee. And one was my editor, who was raised in Tucson, Arizona. And so she said that she didn't have a family ghost story, and the folklore professor from Appalachian State said, well, honey, ghosts don't have call waiting. <laughs> but everybody else who had any connections with the mountains in their heritage had somebody who knew when things were going to happen, dreamed about something, saw someone after they had died. It's just something that runs in families. And when you go back to Scotland, you will find the same stories and the same experiences. So whatever it is, we brought it with us. And usually sight is, it's usually a woman who has sight. People there, talk. there are men who do, but you, you hear about it more from women. And I will tell you the typical ghost story, because people tell me their family ghost stories when I go on tour, and it's nothing that Stephen King would buy you lunch for. But it usually goes something like this. Grandmother was in the kitchen doing the dishes, and she looked out the window over the sink, and she saw Uncle George walking across the lawn. And she was surprised to see him because she was in Tennessee, and he lived in Ohio, and he hadn't said he was coming to visit. So she ran out the back door and looked, and he wasn't in the yard, and he wasn't in the shed, and his car wasn't in the driveway. And so she went back in, and the phone was ringing. And she picked it up, and it was the relatives in Cincinnati saying that Uncle George had died just at the moment she saw him walk across the lawn. Okay. In any gathering of more than 10 people, you will find somebody that has had in their family some experience like that if you're dealing with people from the mountains. Not at all uncommon. Well, Nora Bonesteels having this site is, is an important part of this story, but to me uh, an equally important subtext is the conflict between the snowbirds who are coming into the mountains and the mountain folks. Folks who come in from the outside, they buy the old homestead, they put pink flamingos in the front yard, that kind of thing. And they also kind of dismiss the locals, as one point you say, have a character say, well, they think we're savages. Yes, yes. I, I draw, in several books, I've drawn parallels between one set of people settling the mountains and displacing the old ones. Well, you do have these folks who have bought this old home in the mountains. Yeah. And they decide to stay there for Christmas, but they don't want to celebrate Christmas the way it's celebrated locally. They want to celebrate it the way they did back in Florida. And I walked well, in. They don't know how to celebrate it any other way. Well, that's true. They don't know how to celebrate it any other way. And that, to me, was I love that part of the story. They have a shrimp pink aluminum tree. Now, yeah. I can't imagine anything ghastlier. They don't only have the pink flamingo tree, they've got, they've got all of these Florida ornaments, and they're hanging it on a tree in the Appalachian Mountains. Right. Which would be fine if it was just them, but they bought an old house. And somebody who used to live there and hasn't quite left objects to this change in tradition. Well, and it's and it's not just the tree. Their idea of Christmas songs aren't White Christmas and O Come All You Faithful. It's rocking around the Christmas tree and Blue Christmas and Santa Baby and a few other 
tacky. Jingle Bell Rock. Jingle Bell Rock. So On my Facebook page, I asked last night what song my readers hated the most. And Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer got the most votes, I think. Oh. But Jingle Bell Rock is up there, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, but between the shrimp pink aluminum tree and these comedy carols, the resident ghost there in their house is very upset. Yes. How does he react? We'll go ahead and say it's a he. That's not giving you know. That's not telling away the final story. But how does how does he take care, or how does he deal with this outlandish display in what used to be his family home? Poltergeist phenomena. He knocks over the tree and breaks the ornament. And when I was thinking up the plot for the story, the the ballad novels, which is what the series is called, are named because a ballad, an old folk ballad, either inspired it or is incorporated into the title. Well, when I was writing this one, the song that inspired it was not an old English folk ballad. It was Bing Crosby, I'll Be Home for Christmas, because that song came out in the middle of World War II. And if, if you listen to the beginning of it, it's a soldier who's stationed somewhere in a warm climate, you know, with palm trees and sand and so on, remembering what Christmas used to be like when he was growing up. And so he's missing snow and mistletoe. And so, on. and so I thought, when Nora was a young girl, it would have been the era of World War II, and she would probably have known somebody who did go away to fight and miss Christmas. And what if he didn't ever come home? And so that gave me my ghost, somebody who wanted to come home for Christmas. And when he comes home and finds this, it's not what he had been yearning for. Well, he not only does not like the shrimp, pink aluminum tree with flamingo ornaments and starfish and and what have you. He also takes care of the CD player, and there's no longer any of these Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer and Jingle Bell Rock blasting out in the living room. Right. It won't play anything, but when he's around, they can't. The people who own the house can't hear anything, but Nora hears I'll Be Home for Christmas. Okay, so she, how does she get into the house? She knows these folks. Yes, they met because the woman is interested in gardening, and the new owner wants to restore the garden with uh, the local plants, and Nora's very happy to hear that, and she's a very good gardener. So she's agreed to come and help the woman restore the garden. But when the woman mentions Nora in gatherings around town, oh, you know, Nora's helping me with my garden, People say, oh, she knows when things are going to happen. She can talk to dead people. And so the woman knows this thing about Nora, even though Nora herself never mentions it. Well, when the Christmas tree gets knocked over and the, and the cassette player breaks down, she goes to Nora for help because she knows that if there's something supernatural going on, that's the person to consult. Nora does figure it out. We don't, we don't want to give away the ending, but Nora does figure out what's going on. Okay. You've got a second plot going on, which I found absolutely wonderful, involving the sheriff serving a warrant on an old mountain man on Christmas Eve because a rich politician's making him do that. Yes. It's the two stories, Sharon, that I think make this a very special Christmas book. Let's talk a little bit about the second plot. Now we've got the local sheriff and his deputy, who is from off, a nice foil, driving up the mountain to serve a warrant on an elderly person on Christmas Eve, when, as you say, the skies are clabbering up. And I have not heard that expression since my grandfather's day. I loved it. Yeah, that's what happens when you're churning milk and you get those clumps in the milk. It's called clabber. And there's a time when the sky looks like that. Well, my grandfather not only made his own clabber, but he would talk about the sky mm-hmm. clabbering up. A storm's coming, the big yeah. clunky clouds. So anyway, they're going up the mountain, and what happens when the the sheriff and his deputy get to, to old man Shull's house? The poor old fellow is perfectly cooperative and ready to go with him and humble. It's just that he can't leave his poor invalid wife, who lives alone there with him on, on the farm. They don't have enough wood. The window's broken in the bathroom. He hasn't done his chores that fall, so he's not ready for winter. And he's afraid that if he goes off, they're going to put him in jail for almost a week because the court system just stops 
with the, with the holidays. And so he'll be stuck there in Johnson City, and his wife will be helpless out there on the farm. And so he can't leave her unprepared, just in case there is a snowstorm. And so the sheriff is amenable, and he and his deputy chop wood for an hour or so. Yes, they, they feel so sorry for this man that for what should have been a minor infraction, if the car that had been hit had not belonged to an important politician, this man wouldn't have to spend days and days in jail. He would have just gotten a ticket or something. And so they feel terrible about this woman, his wife, who, who hasn't done anything, being put at risk. So they chop the wood, and they say, let's go, and the old man says, well, the bathroom window's broken, and that might make the pipes freeze. So they repair the window. Yep. And then they get ready to go again, and he says, when you boys were out there cutting wood, did you see if my cows had enough feed? You can see where this is going. <laughs> right. Well, remember at the very beginning, the sheriff says that all he wants for Christmas is a Christmas in which people are glad to see him and nobody dies. And he gets his wish. Well, he has to work for it, but he gets it. I can just picture that old mountain man. He's, he's kind of a, a reminder that, that there are a, a lot of smart people in the mountains who occasionally let people underestimate them because it's to their advantage. I have another little passage that I've written about this old fellow in which he says that when new neighbors move in, when the new people show up, he goes off to greet them and welcome them to the neighborhood and bring them a, a plant that he calls mountain ivy. And he offers to plant a mountain ivy plant in their yard, and they're happy for him to do that. Except that his mountain ivy is actually kudzu. <laughs> yeah. And so the next, when spring rolls around and suddenly the kudzu is taking over the yard, the car, and the outbuildings, then they have to pay him to come back and root it up and get rid of it. <laughs> well, if he can get rid of kudzu, he, we, can, he can, we can find him lots of jobs here in South Carolina, I assure you. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it keeps him busy full time. The other thing he did was that once he had some old locust trees, you know, those weed trees that grow so fast and mm -hmm. are good for nothing. He had some growing down by, by the pasture, and his wife kept wanting him to cut those trees down. So he goes to, the, to the, uh, a different kind of new neighbor, the guys that might be growing pot in the woods or up to drug deals or something, the wearing camos and living in the, an old cabin they've taken over. And he mentions to them that the real money is in walnut trees, that walnut trees can be worth $5,000 at a lumber mill because they're getting scarce. And he says, if you want to see what a walnut tree looks like, there's a stand of them in my pasture. And so sure enough, he comes home from church a few days later, and all those locust trees have been cut down and taken away. <laughs> well, Sharon, have you got a favorite passage that you would like to read for our listeners? I think so, yeah. There's the passage when Nora is remembering the ghost when he was a young man and had gone off to war. His family finds out that he's been killed, and they don't have a body, but they had a memorial service at the church. And then people went back to the house and took food and were consoling the family. So there's a big kind of wake going on at this old house. And this is 1943, so Nora's about 12 years old. No one paid Nora any mind as she slipped through the unlocked door into the front hall. Miss Ida's brave composure was finally broken by the finality of the memorial service and the weeping of the other women present. Their combined lamentations made conversation difficult, so the men stood around awkwardly, looking as if they wished they were somewhere else. It's Nora, isn't it? said a faint voice from behind her. Nora kept a grip on the plate of deviled eggs for fear that she'd send it crashing to the floor. Slowly, she nodded and turned around. The other person in the hall was a solemn young man in army uniform. His strained smile was intended to put her at ease, but his eyes remained sad. Nora glanced into the parlor where the weeping continued and then back at the soldier in the hall. Hello, Tom, he nodded. Yes, I thought you might be able to see me. You're one of the bone steels, aren't you? And you do recognize me. Well, thank you for not screaming and running it away, little Nora. I was afraid you might. You were always kind of kids, Tom, said Nora. 
I don't see why I should be scared of you now just because because I'm dead. Yes, I'm afraid that puts me at a social disadvantage, so I'm glad you came. I wonder if you could please tell my mother that I'm all right. Um, he paused, searching for words. Well, I have no fear or pain anymore. Mostly I regret causing everyone such sorrow, especially Mama. Could you tell her that for me? Nora hesitated. Couldn't you let her know yourself somehow? I tried, but she's all closed in. He glanced toward the parlor and winced. Will you listen to them carrying on in there? They're so wrapped up in their mourning, you could drive a Sherman tank through that room and they wouldn't notice it. I suppose I should feel flattered, but somehow the gesture's lost on me. But you, little Nora, you didn't know me well enough to be carrying on like that, so I hoped I might be able to reach you. I'm still sorry you died, though said Nora. That's a beautiful passage. I had a passage that I liked that dealt with interactions between incomers and those who are there, or as we'd say down here in South Carolina, the beignets and the come years. And it's very early in the book about calling people by their first names. Oh, yeah. Surely the the newcomer is trying to, to figure out the customs. Well, at, at least Shirley is smart enough to ask because she makes the mistake of calling Nora, Nora just once, who always in turn calls her Mrs. Haverty. This is the passage. At, uh, finally, she asked one of the locals about it at the Saturday farmer's market. We tend not to be pushy up here, ma'am, the elderly farmer told her. A lot of us, especially the older folks, feel like calling scant acquaintances by their first name is a little bit like trespassing. We don't go where we're not invited. Today, everybody wants to be on a on a first-name basis. I'm a little bit of an old-fashioned person, as students would have told you at the university. I retired a few years ago, but I always call them Mr. Jones, Miss Smith. I never call them by their first name. If you call everybody by their first name, it means that there's nobody that you can make special. Well, I think the way you interwove the traditions of the mountain folk in with this story, it's really a history lesson for folks. It's not just a wonderful story. It's a, it's a history lesson. It's a lesson in manners, which are all too fast disappearing in the 21st century South, even in the mountains. And a lot of Nora's memory, too, has to do with the things that we brought with us from Britain and with the things the pioneers were familiar with, like chestnut trees. Mm -hmm. The American chestnut trees basically got wiped out in the 1930s, and so the mountains look completely different from how they would have looked two generations ago. And place names like White top and yellow knob referred to the colors of the chestnut trees, and now those trees are gone. Yeah, yeah. well, white top would have been when the chestnut trees were in full bloom, absolutely covered with white blooms. Yes, and they were huge. The, the whole economy was, was based on it. The wood was rot-resistant, so you made roofs and barrels out of it, fed the hogs on the chestnuts. It was so important to the economy, and then one day somebody left a door open in the New York Botanical Gardens which allowed a fungus to escape, and in 30 years it had killed every chestnut tree in America. Well, the American Chestnut Society is trying to, they're working to breed. To bring them back, yeah. To bring them back. They're cross-breeding the American chestnut with the Chinese chestnut, and they're trying to get something with the disease resistance of the Chinese strain, but that looks like an American chestnut. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it takes so long for trees to grow that it will be 20 years before they're sure whether or not they've got it right. Yeah. And if you drive along the parkway here, you will see American chestnut trees that have sprouted from old chestnuts on the ground or from roots of old trees, and they will get to be about 10 feet high in a decade or so before the fungus finds them, and then they die. Well, the folklore, the environment of the mountains, all of this is, is woven throughout Nora Bonesteel's Christmas past. Sharon, is there anything you would like to, to add for our listeners before we sign off? Well, that all of my work has to do somehow with the history and folklore of the mountains, so that I have talked about Daniel Boone and the Civil War and the Battle of Kings Mountain and the Revolution 
and all sorts of aspects of the culture because there's so much negative publicity out there. And one of my sayings when I crossed the Mississippi is deliverance was not a documentary. (laughs) So I'm trying to give the positive side of the culture. Okay. Well, Sharon McCrum, author of Nora Bonesteel's Christmas Past, I want to thank you for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. You're listening to Walter Edgar's Journal. Up next is an encore presentation of a conversation I had with Kirk Neely in 2011 about his book, Santa Almost Got Caught, stories for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the New Year. With me in the studio today for a very special taping of Walter Edgar's Journal is Reverend Dr. Kirk Neely from Spartanburg. He's a pastor of Morningside Baptist Church there. And we also have an audience. We're taping this before a studio audience, individuals who have been long-term supporters of the ETV Endowment. And this is our special way of saying thank you to have them with us. So first of all, Kirk, welcome back to the Journal. Thank you so much, Walter. It's great to be back with you. How do you have time to pastor a large church and keep turning out books? Don't people ask you a similar question? How do you have time to teach and write and do radio? People ask me those questions all the time, and I have an answer that is not very satisfactory. But it's true, and that is that everybody has exactly the same amount of time. I don't have a bit more time than anybody else. It's just what you do with it. It's what you do with it. I have the same amount of time that anybody else has. Well, I don't know how your sermons are, but I know how your stories are. So I know, you make, I know you're making good use of your time when you're putting things to paper. Kirk, let's, let's move on to your, your Santa Almost Got Caught, stories for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the New Year. And let's start off with the story that's the basis for the title about Santa Almost Got Caught. And this, this involves your late son, Eric. It does. Mm-hmm. And, and Eric uh, was eight years old and. I don't remember exactly the year that he was eight. He was born in 73, so that would make him, that would make this 81 or something like that. 81 or 82. It was was 81 because it was right before our daughter Betsy was born. Mm -hmm. So it was Christmas of 1981. Christmas Eve morning, 6 o'clock, I woke up and Eric was standing by the bed. Now, I knew that his classmates had been talking to him about who the real Santa Claus was. And in our family, we had a tradition. My grandfather did this. My dad did this. They always told their children that they were Santa Claus. My dad would say, you know, I'm Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) And, of course, we didn't believe him. And so I did the same thing with my children. I'm Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. And they would say, Dad, you can't deliver presents to all the children in all the world. No. Dad, you don't even have a red suit. You're colorblind. You don't even know what a red suit looks like. I said, that's right. They never did say I wasn't uh, heavy enough. <laughs> you don't have reindeer. They had all kind of reasons why I couldn't be Santa Claus. So the, the idea is you don't lie to your children. You tell them the truth, but you do it in a way that allows them to believe when they're ready to believe. And I knew Eric was just about ready. His classmates had been talking to him. He was standing by the bed, 6 o'clock in the morning. I woke up. I was groggy. He said, Dad, I'm going everywhere you go today. And that Christmas Eve, he stuck with me like glue all day long. He went everywhere I went. We had the custom in those days of going to my parents' home. We'd go to my sister's home for a sort of a brunch, then go to my parents' home and spend most of the rest of the day, and then go back to our home and get ready for Santa Claus to visit. He stayed with me. He, I, when I say he went everywhere, I do mean everywhere, everywhere. He didn't let me out of his sight. I even had to go run some errands and make a hospital visit, and he went with me. So that night, we got back home. Claire was pregnant with our daughter, Betsy. We had three other sons, and uh, Eric said, I'm staying with, up with Dad. Everybody got their stockings out. We had our little devotion, as we do on Christmas Eve maybe sang a Christmas carol, and Claire took the other children upstairs. Eric and I were by the fire. We put on some Christmas music. I was so tired. He said, Dad, let's play Monopoly. I hate Monopoly. <laughs> he loves Monopoly. We played Monopoly. We played until he had captured all my properties and the game was over. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I said, Eric, I am so tired. I'm going to put my head down on the pillow and go to sleep. He said, you go right ahead. I'm going to stay awake. I said, okay. So there by the fire, I got a pillow off the couch and 
put my head down. I went sound asleep. Six o'clock Christmas morning, he's punching me, waking me. Dad, get up. Get up, Dad. I said, hey, Eric. He said, Dad, it's time. I said, time for what? He said, you've got to fix the stockings. You've got to put the toys out. I said, Eric, what are you talking about? He said, Dad, I know it's you. People at school told me it was you. He said, you've got to get up. We've got to get busy. So I roused myself up. I said, come on, let's go to the kitchen and get us a glass of orange juice. We got a glass of orange juice. I said, let's just look around a little bit. We went to the front door, and there was a little bit of candy on the floor by the front door. And he opened the front door, and there was a little trail of candy going out into the yard. I said, looks like somebody was in a hurry. He said, Dad, don't tease me. I said, let's keep looking. We looked around, and there was another trail of candy going down to the basement. I said, we better follow this. He went first. We turned on the basement light, and he got down to the basement, turned the, turned the lights on down there, and there were all the toys. The stockings were stuffed. All the, toy, all the toys were laid out in the basement. He turned around and looked at me and said, how did you do that? <laughs> how did you do that, he said. I said, look, there's a note here. And there was a note from Santa Claus. And the note was to Eric. And it said, dear Eric, I know that you and your dad have had a long night. And he said, I tried not to wake you up. But he said, you know, one of the great mysteries of Christmas is Santa Claus. Christmas is all about mystery. And he said, I know you like to solve puzzles. And he said, I've left a nice puzzle for you. But there are gifts here for, for your brothers and your, your sister who's coming and even for your mom. He said, Eric, I want you to know that the greatest mystery of Christmas is a mystery of love. It's a mystery of God's love. Eric, I want you and your family to remember that this is Jesus' birthday. I love you very much, Santa. That note meant so much to him, and, of course, it meant, meant a lot to us. And, you know, this is really what Christmas is about. It is a mystery. And a part of the mystery is why a father would want so much to see this mystery continue for his child that he would stay up all night on the night of the 23rd laying Christmas out in the basement <laughs> so that when he crawled into bed early, early in the morning, he'd only been in the bed about 15 minutes when that eight-year-old showed up to wake him up. <laughs> so that's the title story of the book. Well, you start off with pre-Thanksgiving mm -hmm. and then talk about how most of us, even we Southerners who are supposed to be laid back, overdo things between the week prior to Thanksgiving through the Feast of Lights, through Epiphany, Twelfth Night, whatever you want to call it, in January, that we all overdo. And you almost have a 12-step program on how we can step back and really enjoy you had the story about the woman who was always so careful about making sure she had her Christmas card list <laughs> yeah, done. Right. And, you know, every year she checked off who had given one, sent one to her and who didn't. And she – so it always balanced. And she decided one year to get everything out early. And then all of a sudden she began to get Christmas cards from people she had sent them to. So she thought she had to send Christmas cards back. Yeah. But I really liked your advice and that was, you know, if someone gives you a gift, give them – a hearty thank you. You don't have to run out and buy a trinket for them just because someone gave you a gift. They gave you a gift for a reason, not it's, necessarily. It's not all about reciprocating. That story, you remember how that story ends about that woman? Mm -hmm. uh, she bought in a hurry, she bought some cards that she could send to those people that she had purged from her list. Mm -hmm. And she sent the cards, never read the message inside. And a few days after Christmas, when she was paying bills, she had one of those cards left. And she opened it up, and it said, this little card is just to say your Christmas gift is on the way. <laughs> you know, it's just a story about being in, in a hurry. And, I, you know, Walter, my concept here is that the holidays, the, the word holiday, really means holy day. And the holidays are supposed to be holy days. And one of the poignant things that I think comes through in the book is that not everybody can always be with you during the holidays. Mm -hmm. I talk about the, the bountiful table, mm -hmm. which is certainly part of any holiday season in the South. But there's always an empty chair. But the holidays, even though they might be holy days, are not always happy days for folks. No, it's not the season to be jolly for a lot of people. You remember the first book, 
that you read, I think, mm-hmm. Comfort and Joy, mm-hmm. Stories for Christmas, is really about people who are having a tough time during the holidays. And I, my contention is that though it may not always be a season to be jolly, it is always a season for comfort and joy. Kirk, that reminds me, one of the stories that really grabbed me was a Kentucky Thanksgiving. Yes, sir. Would you tell that story for our listeners, please? I will. I've changed the name okay. to protect this young man who's not a young man anymore. And I, I must say I've lost track of him. I have no idea what his life is like now. But I was the chaplain at a state mental hospital. This is when you were at Southern Seminary? Mm-hmm. Well, it was. It was. I was in Louisville for eight years. Mm-hmm. We were in Louisville for eight years. And I did a master's degree and a doctorate. And then I had some interim time in there when I did a lot of clinical training. Mm-hmm. My, my training is in pastoral care and counseling, which requires a lot of clinical work. Mm-hmm. So this was part of that. Okay. And I was uh, chaplain on the adolescent unit at the state hospital. And all of the residents were going to be able to go home for Thanksgiving except this one. His name was Bobby. I've changed his name to Bobby. They needed a volunteer to just, he could go home just only for the day. And the reason was he was so sick and his family was so dysfunctional Mm -hmm. that they were afraid to let him go home and spend the night. And they needed one staff member to take him down just for the day. And so I volunteered to do that. Claire stayed home with the little children, and we had our Thanksgiving dinner that night. So these things, you know, there's an upside and a downside to these things, and she usually got the hard side of it Mm -hmm. uh, in these things. But uh, I got in the car with Bobby. I picked him up early in the morning, and we started driving to eastern Kentucky. He lived in the mountains over in eastern Kentucky back in coal mining country, mm-hmm. and we started back there. And uh, he wouldn't talk about anything except the cars on the road. He loved cars, and he'd talk about all the automobiles. We drove over to his home and knocked on the door. The door was open. We walked in. There was nobody home. Now, the social worker had talked to his mother and his grandmother, and they knew he was coming. But when we got to the home, there was not anybody there. He said, maybe they're at my grandmother's house. I said, well, let's go see. We got in the car, and we went winding back up through those mountains to this cabin up on the side of a mountain. Nobody there. He said, let's go back to the house. We went back to the house. Again, nobody there. I said, Bobby, we need to get us something to eat. I had no idea where I was going to find something for us to eat on Thanksgiving Day. He said, no, I'll fix something. And he opened the refrigerator. There was a good supply of beer. But the only other thing in the refrigerator was a bowl of cold grits and a roll of bologna. And he got out a frying pan, and he fried the bologna. And then he sliced the grits and fried that in the bologna grease. We got two glasses of water. We sat down at a little kitchen table with a kind of an oil canvas cloth on it. And we ate Thanksgiving dinner, fried bologna and cold grits, mm-hmm. fried. I said Psalm 100, mm-hmm. which is a custom in our home. Mm-hmm. We had a prayer, and we ate together. Again, he didn't have much to say. We cleaned up the dishes, and we left. We left the house open just as we had. It was time for us to go back. We drove all the way back to Louisville, back to the hospital. It was actually in Anchorage, Kentucky, close to Louisville. I took him back up to the adolescent unit, and he the only thing he would talk about were the automobiles. He didn't, you know, not a word about how disappointed he was, although I could see it in his eyes. And when we got back up to the adolescent unit, I said, Bobby, thanks for going with me today. And he turned around and threw his arms around my neck and hugged me and said, this is the best Thanksgiving I've ever had. Mm. My point is, Thanksgiving is not what's on your table. Thanksgiving is what's in your heart. Mm. That's a beautiful story. Now, you've also got some humorous stories about Christmas. I guess one of my favorites had to do with uh, Christmas pageants, past and present, <laughs> and of course you're younger than I am, Kirk. But when we were we were all growing up, and I, I, I know some people so. here in the audience. If you were in the Christmas pageant and you were a shepherd, you wore your bathrobe, <laughs> and they tied a towel around your head, 
And then you had to figure out what you're going to do for the shepherd's crook. We tried variations on those canes, on those staffs. Mm -hmm. One year we tried cardboard, and it rained, and they they were floppy. (laughs) But finally my dad cut some out of quarter-inch plywood, and everybody had a – and they were were fine, but they made a lot of noise if you tried to sword fight with them, and we usually did. (laughs) So, you know, you're supposed to wear your dad's bathrobe Mm -hmm. if you're a shepherd. My dad didn't wear a bathrobe. Mm -hmm. So my mother had this red quilted bathrobe that I always wore. Well, this particular year – the fellow that had always played the part of Joseph, who was two years older than I, uh, had the flu. And the pastor's wife, who directed this thing, called my mother and said, Kirk needs to be Joseph this year, and we need a better bathrobe. <laughs> my mother said, we don't have a better bathrobe. She said, well, he can wear the pastor's bathrobe. So the pastor was a big man. His bathrobe looked like Joseph's coat of many colors. <laughs> they had to pin it up at the bottom and roll the sleeves up, gather it up at the waist. And that thing was hot. That robe was hot. Just not any old towel would do. They had to have a special towel with a special necktie holding it on. And, you know, being Joseph was quite a promotion for me. But the most difficult thing about it was I had to stand next to the prettiest girl in the church. And she was two years older than I was. And she looked like a grown woman. I mean, she had already filled out in all the right places. And I, I was still afraid of girls. But, uh, you know, I was going to be Joseph. So we rehearsed the thing, and it went well. And then this fellow that had always been Joseph called me and said, Kirk, I'm well. I can be Joseph now. I said, no, I've rehearsed this. I've got it down. I think I'm going to do it. He said, Kirk, you know I'm sweet on her. I said, yes, I know, but that's fine. I'm not going to interfere with that, but I'm going to be Joseph. Well, he was one of these fellows that couldn't stand an empty spotlight. And so he weaseled his way into being one of the three wise men. So we come to the night of the pageant. All the cues are supposed to be given by the lady playing the piano. And she's going to play. This is Croft Baptist Church. They got spotlights up in the balcony. The place is packed. And we're ready to go with this Christmas pageant. So we're standing outside the door. And the girl who's playing the part of Mary opened the door and looked in. And she said, y'all, there are people in there. I got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And she handed me. The baby doll, it was supposed to be baby Jesus, and she took off to the bathroom. It was a Betty Wetty or something. Betsy Wetsy. Betsy Wetsy. So I'm standing there holding this doll, and the woman starts playing Old Little Town of Bethlehem, which is when we're supposed to come in. I'm standing there with no Mary and the baby in my arms. (laughs) No way I'm going down that aisle solo. No single parents in this pageant. (laughs) So I wait, and the woman thinks that we can't hear the cue. So she starts pounding out the second verse of O Little Town of Bethlehem. Mary shows up. I hand her the doll, and we walk in. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time we got down to the front, that bathrobe was so hot. The spotlights were glaring down, that towel on my head, standing next to the prettiest girl in the church, and I was just sweating, just profusely. I mean, I was so hot. She took that doll and put it in the manger. We had rehearsed, and for the life of me, I don't remember that that doll made any sound during rehearsal. But when she put it in that manger, it cried like a Betsy Wetsy doll would cry, something like a sick cat. And have you ever been tickled when you weren't supposed to be? (laughs) I got so tickled. I was standing there just so nervous and perspiring and, you know, and tickled, just fighting it. And I just, you know, it was the most uncomfortable thing. And I wore butch hair wax because I had a flat top. And my butch hair wax. I'm trying to imagine you in a flat top. I mean, I had one, one too, and I used that pink butch wax. I know exactly what you're talking about. A long time ago, wasn't it, Walter? It it was a long time ago. (laughs) Well, my butch hair wax started melting. And I could could feel it sliding down my face. (laughs) The shepherds came in. They did fine. You know, while shepherds watch their flocks at night. The angels came in, angels we have heard on high. Their wings were too wide for the door. They had rehearsed without their wings, and they put these wings on them, and every angel got stuck in the door jamb, and a mother backstage had to turn them all sideways to get them in. (laughs) 
And then it was time for the it was time for the uh, wise men to come in. Mm-hmm. They were coming down the aisle. The first one had a, a Tampa Nugget cigar box wrapped in gold foil. That was the gold. Mm-hmm. Second one had an old spice bottle. Mm-hmm. That was the frankincense. And the third one was supposed to have a witch hazel bottle mm-hmm. for the myrrh. Mm-hmm. Well, this fellow that had weaseled his way into being a wise man realized, I think, about the same time I did that he had forgotten his gift. And he was coming down the aisle empty-handed. And those wise men, we three kings of Orient are, mm-hmm. those wise men came down the front. The first one put that gold foil cigar box down. The second one put that old spice bottle down. And I saw my friend hike up his bathrobe and reach in his blue jean pocket. And he placed at the feet of baby Jesus his Duncan Spinner yo-yo <laughs> as his gift. Well, actually, that was probably, that literally was his most precious gift. He was quick thinking, and it was a special gift. He loved that yo-yo. We mentioned, you know, humorous stories. We talked about the Christmas pageant. I loved your Christmas tree stories. <laughs> when we were growing up, we went down to the woods. Mobile County cut down our Christmas tree. When my girls were growing up, we did the same thing here. Yeah, we used to get a three-ton lumber truck. My grandfather and my dad ran a lumber yard. We'd get a three-ton lumber truck and usually go uh, one of the Saturdays early in December out to some uh, an old farm. The, the farm, no agriculture going on there, no, no uh, tilling of the ground at that time. But the place was covered with red cedar trees. Mm-hmm. And we'd go and cut a tree for every family. Uh, my grandfather... Grandmother had nine children. My dad was one of those, so we cut a tree for every family that wanted one. My mother always wanted holly with red berries, and there was a huge American holly tree always covered with berries. And we'd take my twenty-two rifle and shoot mistletoe out of the top of an oak tree. And we'd load all that stuff on the truck and bring it home and parcel it out, and my mother would decorate. One year we put up our red cedar tree, Brought it in the house. Daddy put the lights on it. We decorated it. And about three days after the tree had been in the house, my mother went in the living room, and there were little tiny red things crawling all over the drapes, all over the carpet, all over the living room. She called Daddy on the phone, which she almost never did, and he came straight home, which he never did. (laughs) We had red spiders that had come in with that tree, apparently a nest of them, dormant nest had come in with that tree and the warmth of the house made them think it was time to hatch and so they hatched out we had red spiders all over the place daddy took the tree out in the yard with all the decorations on it and sprayed it and sprayed it and sprayed it with pesticide finally we brought it back in it didn't smell a thing like a cedar tree (laughs) we even went and bought some of those uh, car deodorizers that are supposed to have a cedar scent to them and hung those on the tree like orange, and it still didn't smell like a cedar tree. Claire and I had a similar experience with a Fraser fir from North Carolina, certified pest-free. But one day we looked, and that tree was covered with these little black bugs. And I called. We have some pest control friends that are in the church. He came out and looked. He said, these are black aphids. And he said, they're supposed to kill these when they spray these trees. But there they were. And his... His uh, crew did basically the same thing. They hauled the tree out in the front yard and sprayed it, sprayed the living room. Now, the Fraser fir aroma did come back. Well, So there's some funny stories about Christmas trees. Any last words you'd like to say for our listeners before we wrap it up today? Well, I just want to say that, first of all, I want to say to you and to your colleague, Alfred, mm. how grateful I am for the program. Mm. Claire and I listen to it almost every week. Thank you. And we are grateful for the program. We're certainly grateful for these stations. And uh, I'm I'm a big fan, as you know, I'm a big fan of public radio. I also want to say that without listeners and without readers, uh, you and I would be out of business. That's true. (laughs) So (laughs) I think the last thing I'd like to say is – Walter and I both are grateful for the radio. We both have a face for radio. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I would say speak for yourself, Kirk. (laughs) Yeah, and I have. And I have. But I've had Miss Neela tell me the same thing. (laughs) Well, 
Thank you, Kirk Neely, author of Santa Almost Got Caught, Stories for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the New Year. Thanks so much for being with us back again on The Journal. Great to be with you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed this special holiday segment of The Journal. Sharon McCrum's Nora Bonesteel's Christmas Past is not just a heartwarming holiday story. It's also a story about past and present and the interaction of locals with those they would call interlopers. And then Kirk Neely, what a storyteller. The title is Santa Almost Got Caught, but there's stories from the holidays from Thanksgiving through New Year. And this is Walter Edgar wishing you and yours a happy holiday season. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.